The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So this morning we have the distinct privilege of studying the most influential Bible translation in the history of the English language. The reign of the King James Bible, the number of years it's been used, the um, beauty of it is unparalleled and unprecedented. It is just insane to think that there's a Bible that was translated over 400 years ago and is still in fairly wide use today. For the past two weeks, we have studied pre-King James Version English Bible translations and the translators. And part of the reason we did that is because I think it's essential to understand the impact that their work had on the King James Version. Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study again your word and to study its, um, just its history and how uh, you've preserved it for us and how we have it in English. And Lord, I pray that you would help our minds to, um, first of all, lift up the word of God high and to think um, highly of your word and to submit ourselves to it. And, and second of all, Lord, I pray that we would be open and honest with what we know of history and we would um, leave this class being better informed uh, about how you have brought your word to us today. And we love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the plan today is to cover, first of all, the history behind the translating of the King James Version. So, so what was it? What events led up to the need for a new translation or the desire for a new translation? How do we get to the point where they said, you know what, we're not going to use the Geneva anymore. We're not going to use the bishops anymore. Let's have a new translation of the Bible And why did King James decide he wanted to translate it? We will also look at the overview of the process of translation. We'll look at how they translated by committee and what that looked like. And we'll look at a little bit of the results and the influence of the King James. So hopefully we get to as much as we can this morning. And so that that is the plan for today. I want to begin this morning just by giving you a quote by Leland Reichand. He said, this year, and he's speaking in 2011 marks the 400th anniversary of the most important event in the history of English Bible translation. In fact, the publication of the King James Version of the Bible in 1611 was the most important event in the history of book printing as a whole, inasmuch it is the the best-selling English book of all time. And that is a pretty powerful statement. The King James Version has and still is lifted up as a a brilliant masterpiece of English literature. It is an incredible, incredible book. And so what I want to do is just learn a little bit about how we got to having the King James Version. So let's look at the history of the behind the translation. The setting in England at the turn of the 17th century. King James was born in 1566, back in the 16th century, to Queen Mary of Scotland. And in 1567, at the age of 13 months, he took the throne. Just pretty exciting, being a king of Scotland at 13 months old. Obviously, they had different people that would control the kingdom while he was a baby and growing up. And I think around age 18, he gained full control of the throne. Eventually, he became the king not only of Scotland, but of Ireland and of England in 1603. And so he was King James IV of Scotland and King James I of England. 
There were three competing branches of Christianity in England during this time. You had the smallest group who were the, the Roman Catholic group. They were the ones that thought that the Anglican Church should still go back to Roman Catholicism. And so they were what a lot of people call the high church crowd. They were the ones that thought church should be very formal, that there was a lot of power in the, the papacy and in the um, setup. And so they were always trying to push back toward Roman Catholicism. The second group was the Anglican group. And these were the people who were loyal to the king and to the Church of England. It was a very large group of people. And they believed that what the king uh, said, what the, the Church of England, that's the church that we should follow. We are English people, and so let's follow them. There were also the Puritan group. These were more the Protestants. Now, there were some Puritans that were still part of the Anglican Church. But most of the Puritans were Protestants. And so you had this, this third Protestant group who believed that the, the Anglican Church, just like the Roman Catholic Church, had missed the boat. They weren't trying to follow the Word of God. They weren't trying to follow the Bible. And so what we needed to do is just have a completely new group of churches. And so it's from this third group that many of the denominations that we know today as Protestant denominations grew. They, they grew from this group of, of people. So we have three groups of people. We also have two competing Bible translations. We have the Geneva Bible, which again is the common Bible of the people. It's the one that was translated by the Puritans when they were exiled to Geneva, Switzerland. And they did just a masterful job of translating the Word of God. They, they updated and completed Tyndale's work in, the, in a wonderful way. And so this was the book that was recognized by the majority of people as the best translation of the Bible. The only problem that anybody had with this translation is that it was very Protestant in its notes. And it was a study Bible. And so there were many, many notes. And throughout it, the notes all pointed against the Catholic Church and against high church and toward the Protestant Church. And so a lot of people didn't like the Bible because of that. Then there was also the Bishop's Bible. And if you remember, that was the Bishop's Bible is an update of the Great Bible, which is an update of the Matthew's Bible. And so this was not a bad translation of the Bible, but it did have a lot of notes that were pro-Church of England. And so now you have an increasing animosity between these groups. And so within the kingdom, because of religion, the kingdom is divided. You have many people who are pushing very hard that the Anglican Church takes over. You have many Protestants. So there's this, this increasing animosity, and England as a whole is not getting along very well. Just everybody is pushing in different directions religiously, and they, they all want their own thing. They all think their Bible is the best, and so there's a lot of fighting within England. And this led to what's called the Hampton Court Conference. King James was approached by the Puritan leaders with something called the Millenary Petition. And it was called this because there were thousands of Puritan signatures that requested a new English translation of the Bible. And they were, they were requesting that, that, that they meet. And so what the king did is he said, yeah, okay, we'll meet. But when he set up the meeting, he handpicked who would be allowed to come to the meeting. And so there were, there were 18 very, very highly educated Anglican clergy members that were invited to this meeting. And then there were four not very educated Puritans that were invited to the meeting. And so he set it up so the Puritans already would just look bad. And the conference, as far as it was planned, didn't go well. 
They spoke about many different issues. The Puritans did their best to try and say this is what the Bible says, this is why we do what we do, but the king kept throwing out their arguments because there were just 18 very educated people that were arguing against them constantly. And so nothing was really resolved until the very end when one of the Puritan leaders stepped up and said, you know what, we want a new English Bible translation. And everybody thought that the king would shut them down, just like he had kind of shut down everything before it, but the king thought that was a great idea. And so because of that, that was the beginning of the, the idea behind the King James Bible. King James um, put together a group of 47. It started with 54. So he actually asked 54 people to do it. And for some reason, at the end of the translating, there were only 47 names mentioned. And so maybe some of them died. Maybe some said no or whatever. But um, there was 47 men who were asked to translate the King James Bible. He made a couple rules. And his rule, first of all, was that there was no marginal notes allowed. Okay, so you were not allowed to write anything Protestant, anything Anglican, or anything Catholic within the notes. And I, I hope we understand that as we think about this situation, maybe we look at our King James Bible and we hold it up and we say, oh man, what, I mean... I wonder how God brought about this beautiful translation. I wonder what the history behind it is. I wonder how this thing came into being. And we maybe have this sensationalized view of like just these, all these godly people working in wonderful ways to bring about this. And it's funny that God didn't work that way here. That actually the opposite is true. That you had people that were fighting, infighting, and everybody pushing their own religious view. And then you have a king who, he's doing this completely for political reasons. I mean, he's just trying to, to achieve peace in his country. He thinks that maybe this will help, but he's not doing it because he loves the Bible so much, or he loves the Word of God, or he wants to see a great translation in English. All of this is happening because, for political reasons. And yet God uses this to bring about such a wonderful and beautiful translation of the Bible. And one of the things that was nice is when King James... Uh, chose those 47 men, he did not go around and choose the most high-ranking bishops and high-ranking officers in different church or in different groups. What he did is he went around to the universities and he picked the most educated, the most scholarly, the most brilliant um, scholars he could find in the original languages, and those are the people that he chose. Now, ultimately, all of them but one were Anglican clergy members. And so they all had affiliation with the Anglican Church. However, in that group, they weren't all as pro-Anglican as you be. In fact, there were 12 people that identified themselves as Puritans. So they're Anglicans, but they were Puritans, and they're, so they're much more Protestant in the thinking. There were also a few that, that identified themselves more with the Roman Catholic Church. So yes, they were part of the Anglican Church, but they had hoped that at some point they would move back. And so even though they're all Anglican, essentially, um, they're they're all representing somewhat different viewpoints. And so they're all bringing those viewpoints to the text. This is the first time that a Bible had been translated by committee this way. And so the, the process of translation is very, very interesting. 47 men were broken into six different groups. There were two, two groups assigned to the New Testament, three groups assigned to the Old Testament, and one group assigned to the Apocrypha. And they met in three different locations. Okay? They, they met in Oxford University. And at Oxford University, it was more Catholic-leaning university. And then they met in Cambridge University. Two groups met there, which was a more Puritan-leading university. And then they met in Westminster Abbey, which is an Anglican church building. 
And so even, even in the locations, you have these three groups represented. And so there's two committees in each. Each committee has seven or eight guys in the committee. And they're given the task of translating their version into English as much as possible. Now what the king did is he said that the bishop's Bible had to be the base of your translation. So you have to begin with the phrasing and the words used in the bishop's Bible. And then you can change those words and make notes on what it should be based on your study in the original languages. Okay? And so it's really, really interesting because when we read the King James Bible, it really reads a lot like the Geneva Bible or Tyndale's Bible. We've spoken about that. I think it's 95% of the Geneva Bible and, and nearly 90% of Tyndale's work is in the King James. But originally, they were given the great, the great Bible, or the Bishop's Bible, sorry. Here's the Bishop's Bible, and so you have to make changes when it's very clear that the original requires it. And so they were all given a bunch of sheets of paper, um, loose leaf versions, and they spent two to three years on their areas. So each group had certain areas to translate. They spent two to three years, and when they were done, they took what they had, they had completed, and copies of it were made, and then they were sent to the other groups. And so now you have all the other groups holding copies of what each group has, has the work that they have done. And now those groups have an opportunity to review what the other groups have done, and they take a, took a couple more years to do this review process where they were able to say, why did you use this word here? I don't understand why you translated this way. I think it's better translated this way. And during that process, what happened is, and they actually have some of the, the Bibles that were written on, um, some of the, the bishops' Bibles that had all these notes, and the process that you see happening is it moves from the Bishop's Bible more and more to the Geneva Bible. And so every single change is a change toward the Geneva Bible. And so they're sending these back and forth, and a lot of changes are being made in the original works based on what the other people think should, should be happening. And then, um, once that was done, if there were changes that they couldn't figure out what to do with, you know, here we have this group, and they're competing against this group, and nobody really knows um, which one, or nobody can, has the authority to say this is the word we should use, this is how it, this should be written. Um, they had one delegate from each group that met together for nine months, and they hammered out those, those final um, difficulties. And at the end of the nine months, in, in 1611, the King James Bible was finally ready to be printed. Does anybody have any questions about that? Because I know I skipped over that quickly, and there's a lot there, and there's probably a lot that I forgot. Um, so you have questions about how that process of translation worked. The bishop's Bible? So they would be looking at the originals. Um, they would also be, they'd have in front of them every other English translation of the Bible. So they would look at the bishops and they'd say, okay, well, the Geneva Bible says this, Tyndale's Bible says this, um, the, the Great Bible says this, Matthew's Bible says this, the Coverdale Bible says this, the Dewey Reams ver version says this. And so why did people use different phrases? And if we go, when we consider the originals, which one actually fits best? So this is like, the Cambridge Bible is an amazing thing. And part of that is because they took 100 years of scholarship. And they were to benefit from all of that work that had been done by all these brilliant men that went before them. And now they can just compare these works and say which one works best. Um, one of the things that, that the King James Bible has is a difference from the Geneva Bible is that 
when the Geneva Bible was translated, it was Protestants doing the work. And so they were careful not to choose words that would legitimize some of the things in the Catholic Church. So, for example, they use the word congregation very often instead of the word church, right? Now, if I tell you, if I say, what is a church? I think within our church, you would all answer, well, is it a group of um, baptized believers who have gathered together for the purpose of glorifying God? Or something along those lines, right? You'd all know that I'm speaking, the church is not this building, the church is a congregation. But for a long time, the church was referring to the Roman Catholic Church. And so they would say congregation because they're trying to make a distinction between the Roman Catholic Church and the congregation. But by the time the King James was translated, um, some of that um, difference had dissipated. That, that the, 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 you could say church and not necessarily mean Roman Catholic Church. And so now it was probably better or it was easier. I'm sure there were some people that still thought congregation was better. But now you could use the word church and not everybody would assume you're speaking about the Roman Catholic Church. Good question. So, Dan, so did they have copies of, like, Yes. Yeah, they had, they had um, Stephanus' text, which Stephanus' text was basically Erasmus' text. And so they had almost the exact same thing that Tyndale had when he sat down to translate his. So the amazing thing here is that um, King James, when he first sat down and said, I want a new translation of the Bible he made a comment that the Geneva Bible was the worst. So he'd never seen a good Bible translation in English, but the Geneva Bible was the worst. And he said that because in Exodus chapter 1, verse 19, there's something about the midwives. There's a, there's a, a comment or a note that says the midwives were justified in disobeying the king and saving the Hebrew babies, not killing all the babies. And he thought they weren't justified. And so he had issue with the note there and in a few other places. And so he thought that the New Bible was the worst. And so he commissions a group of people. He, he hand-selects them himself. He gives them their rules. He puts them to a task. And they come out with a Bible that is 95% the Geneva Bible. That matches the Geneva Bible much better than the, the Bishop's Bible that he had given them or, or anything else. And so it's amazing how that, that turned out. And many people have called this the fifth revision of the Tyndale Bible. Because it, the wording is so closely matches. How does a committee with 47 men seem to speak with one voice throughout their translation? If you were to read the King James Bible and you were to really study it, I don't think you would study it and be like, okay, I can tell that this was the translation philosophy here and that this person really liked these words. And then you'd get to another book and be like, oh, they, this is where they switched committees. How do you do it? Well, the answer is the voice is William Tyndale. And that's, it was his phrases and his ideas that kind of carried their translation through. And so they have all these problems that, that every committee would run into. If you had any committee, there would be fighting within. Um, there would be uh, different groups using different words to translate the same thing because that's just the direction that they leaned. And once you lean that way one way, it's easier to lean that way the next way. But ultimately, that's not what we find. And so the King James Bible is a wonderful example that says um, translation by committee is possible. And what's interesting is a lot of people um, writing historically about the King James said that during that time, there was an incredible amount of religious turmoil in England. And yet during that time, when you got these men together to do the translation, it seemed like there was this type of peace within those groups 
where all of a sudden all of this fighting ceased and there was, I mean, they, they worked together really well. Now, there were, there, there were a few people who weren't chosen to be a part of the King James Translate, Translating Committee. And they were very, very upset about it. And so they wrote scathing things about the King James, like every single one should be burned and uh, worse than that. So, but overall, I mean, the, the process went remarkably well. And it's somewhat of a miracle that, we, that they were able to come out with such a um, cohesive, unified translation. And so the results were the six committees produced not only a unified product, but a literary masterpiece. The only one that has ever been produced by a committee. There's never been a committee of people that have produced a literary masterpiece like the King James Bible. They set out to produce an accurate translation. And so the men that were chosen were brilliant linguists. They were brilliant scholars. But we have to understand that they were living at a day during a time when literary excellence was at a premium. Okay, so this was the time of William Shakespeare. This is the time of plays that were just, you listened to them and it was just music to your ears. It was beautiful. And so even though their goal was accuracy, the time that they lived in pushed them towards choosing uh, a translation or choosing a word wording that was very rhythmic, wording that had just uh, almost a beat to it. And when they were translating, they were, they were translating with the goal of this being read aloud to people. Because during this time, most people couldn't read. And so if they wanted the translation to be most effective, it wouldn't be something that you would read silently in your head. It would be something that would be read aloud. And so all of these things combined to make this literary masterpiece. Um, Alistair McGrath wrote a book called In the Beginning, The Story of the King James Bible and How It Changed a Nation, a Language, and a Culture. He wrote, The king's translators achieved um, literary merit unintentionally by focusing on what to them was a greater goal, which was accurate translation. The achievement of prosaic and poetic elegance that resulted was, so to speak, a most happy accident of history. So we end up with this beautiful translation, not because they're trying to be beautiful, but because they're just living in this day and they're brilliant linguists. The language and style of the Kingdom Version are wonder because they defy complete analysis. It's been said many times that the King James can be parodied and imitated, but never duplicated. And so you can try and use some of the same words, and you can throw F at the end of your words, but, but nobody can speak like the King James speaks. It just it can't be copied. For us, it probably seems somewhat formal and ornate. Right? It, it seems like they were, they were writing above the language of the common people, but this wasn't the case during the day. It was beautiful, it was dignified, it was elegant, but it was also easily understood. And actually some Roman Catholics um, had a problem with the King James because they said it was too plain, it was too simple. And certainly we don't think that's the case, and the translators clearly said um, in their preface that they were trying to, to come up with a translation that was not dark, that it was light, that it was clear. And that, that's certainly what they, what they did. Uh, one expert, when comparing the King James with previous English translations, said the King James translators had an instinct for betterment. And so they took what was before them and they just found ways to make it better. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 is an example of this. Um, William Tyndale rendered it, 
Godliness is great riches if a man be content with what he hath. Okay, sounds nice. Okay. So the King James translators um, rendered it. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And that just sounds nice, doesn't it? I mean, godliness is great riches if a man be content with what he hath. Okay. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's, it's easy to remember. It's easy to say. One of the wonderful things about the King James is it is so easy to memorize because it has this rhythm. So many preachers, though they might preach from other translations now, they still quote verses in the King James because that's what they memorized. Um, most of the wonderful sermons of the past, most of the incredible theologians of the past, it was the King James Bible that they used. The translation was both simplistic and majestic. And I think one of the greatest compliment, compliments that a translation can receive is that the King James style is as varied as the original text. So, so they varied their translation style, or they varied the way that they wrote with what was originally in the, the documents. And so when it was supposed to sound majestic, it sounded majestic. Um, if you read, if you're able to read the Greek in 1 Corinthians 13, you would read it and say, that sounds beautiful. Okay? And so they render it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, and become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. That whole thing just sounds majestic. It's beautiful. That whole chapter is. Well, the Greek is too. But sometimes they sound very different in how they translate, and it's because the original sounded different. An example is Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. There's still beauty in that, but it's very simple. And that's what they did. And so the, the influence of the King James Bible. Does anybody have any questions about what we've talked about so far? Yes, Ken. Before 1611, uh, the common people used the Geneva Bible. Um, that was the Bible of the Puritans and the Bible of the people that seemed to be very into the Bible. And so the most popular Bible was the Geneva Bible. But the Bible that was placed into Anglican churches was the Bishop's Bible, which was supposed to be the basis or the, the foundation for the King James. So I, I don't know if that answers your question. If you went to church, you'd hear the Bishop's Bible. But if you were at home, you likely had a copy of the Geneva Bible. If you had a copy. The Catholics, they got their Bible. They did have their Bible. It wasn't... We think we got our King James. Yeah. So the, the Catholics used the Dewey Reams Bible, which never achieved a great deal of popularity. And so that... The, it was never really competing well with the great... Or the Bishop's Bible or the Geneva Bible. Um, it might be used by some English-speaking Catholics, but there wasn't as many of those. And, and it was very clearly not as good of a translation. Uh, the Dewey Reams Bible was updated, and I'm going to get the date wrong. It was like 1630 or 1738 or something like that. They, they came with an update, and apparently when they updated it, they basically made it much more like the King James. And so that was what was used for a long time. I think they have a new Bible, the Good News Bible or something now. But yeah, does that answer your question? Okay. The King James Bible was the most influential book in the history of English-speaking world and possibly in the world as a whole. This is the best-selling book of all time. Some estimate that between 5 and 6 billion copies of the King James Bible have been sold. Okay, 5 and 6 billion copies, that's almost a Bible for every person alive. That's an incredible number. 
From approximately <laughs> 1700 to 1950, the King James Bible was the preeminent book in England and America in virtually every sphere of society. So people from every uh, secular, it was all over the secular world. In, in the family, in religion, in the church, in politics, in education, in literature, in art, in music. It provided a standard of stylistic and linguistic excellence. So when people wanted to see what good writing looked like, when you wanted to learn how to write well, when you wanted to le- learn to read something that was written well, then you would pull out the King James and that would be the standard. That, was, that would be the, the base. Kids learned to read using the King James Bible. It was quoted by presidents and writers and movie stars. It was quoted in songs. It was quoted all over the place. Every church imaginable used the King James Version. Most churches in America were were Protestant churches. And so that was the Bible. Though the first Bible brought over was the Geneva Bible, very quickly that was replaced. Um, What's actually interesting is the King James Bible gained the, the popularity the fastest within the Anglican Church because it was translated by Anglican churchmen, because it was taken and and a copy of it was given to every single Anglican church in England. And so very quickly it became popular there. But what happened is the Puritans, who were used to fighting against the Anglican church, um, saw that, and so they said, well, it must be an Anglican Bible. And so they kept their Geneva Bible, but they were no longer allowed to be printed in, uh, in England anymore. And so they would print the Bibles in uh, Germany, and then the Bibles would be shipped to England, shipped, brought, and sold among the common people. And they were, they were kept being printed until 1644. So it took at least 33 years before the common people said, you know what, the King James Bible isn't actually an Anglican Bible. It's a good translation of the Bible. We have verses all over the place that, that have been displayed in America, and most of those verses are King James verses. So, Um, At the University of Oregon, for example, at the library entrance, it says, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. John chapter 8, verse 32. Uh, The Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. It says, Proclaim liberty through all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. And that's Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. At the United Nations headquarters in New York City. At the front, they have Isaiah 2.4, which is, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, I mean, they have that at their headquarters. <laughs> Hasn't worked so well for them. <laughs> we don't really see that coming true because of the United Nations. However, just the fact that the King James Bible was just, it was placed all over the place. You'd, you'd walk down the street, you'd go into a public building, you would see a verse uh, from the King James Bible. Um, Samuel Morse, who was the inventor of Morse code and the inventor of the telegraph machine. The first words that were sent um, from one city to another city in 1844 were, What hath God wrought? Which is Numbers chapter 23, verse 23. Buzz Aldrin, who was the second person who walked on the moon, um, spoke on a television broadcast, and he said, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. This is Psalm 8, verse 3. Benjamin Franklin, during a debate in the drafting of the U.S. Constitution, said, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Which is Psalm 127, verse 1. 
And we could give countless more examples of the King James Bible being used in the secular world, um, in, on secular buildings, because that, it, just, it just infiltrated American society. Okay? It infiltrated England as well. And it was just the preeminence of the King James Bible for over 250 years. It's unparalleled. It's unbelievable. Nothing like that could ever happen again. So here are some interesting facts about the King James. It's been called the best of the classics the world has ever admired. And these are just some interesting things. Uh, as, I, as I was studying, these were kind of things that I came across and I wasn't exactly sure where to place them. So I thought, I'm just going to have an interesting fact section at the end and then I can throw whatever at you I want and it'll still make sense. So in the translation to the reader, here's what the translators stated as their goal. They never thought from the beginning that they should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better, or to make out of many good ones one principal good one, not justly to be accepted against, that hath been our endeavor, that our mark. So you get what he's saying there? Saying, we believe that translations that have come before, they're good translations. And so it's not our goal to reinvent this whole thing. Our goal is to take a good translation and, if possible, make it better. Our goal is to make a translation that nobody will have a just uh, criticism of. Which, what was happening during this time is that there were good translations all over the place, but there were areas where the, the Catholics could say, that's really mean to say, Geneva Bible, when you say that in the notes, Right? And so they wanted to make one that everybody could agree to, but that was really a good translation. Uh, the translators were seeking to create a translation that would be translation that we read out loud. It was originally called the Holy Bible, containing the Old Testament and the New, newly translated out of the original tongues and with former translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special commandment. It's a pretty long title. That was the original title. That's actually what was on the, the cover of the, the King James Bibles. It was not called the King James Bible until 1814. It was a long time. There were, now, people would say that they would say it's, it's King James's translation as just kind of referring to the one that, that King James, but they wouldn't, were not using that as a name, more as an adjective of the translation. And eventually it became, it's the King James Bible. That was until 1814. The word authorized version came about around the same time. So some people would call it King James Bible. Other people would call it the authorized version. But originally, it was just the Holy Bible. In the first printing, the books were 17 inches tall and 15 inches wide. Okay, so 17 inches tall, 15 inches wide. When you opened it up, it would not fit on this pulpit. It would be, be sticking out over the sides. So massive, massive book. They say it was around 30 pounds per book. And they didn't include pictures or a lot of notes. In the King James Bible, you have cross-references, and you have a few places that explain why they translated a word the way they did or, or another way to translate it if you'd like to, but you didn't have notes. Now, in the, first, in the King James Bible, you did have the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha was at... In the middle, just like the Protestants had done, they took the Apocrypha out of the Old Testament and they placed it between the Testament as intertestamental books. And then what happened eventually is that as, as different printers were allowed to print the King James, 
um, they would determine whether they wanted to include it or not include it. So around 1770, the last um, King James Bibles that have the Apocrypha in it are being printed. It's starting to become less popular to print it with the Apocrypha and more popular to print it without. And that's likely because the Dewey Reams had been updated and, and so now Catholics had their own and so now it was becoming more of a, just a Protestant Bible. The first printer was a man named Robert Barker and he invested very large sums of money in printing this new edition, but he ran into a serious amount of debt because of it. And so th- there's a long story, but essentially what happened is he went to a few different printers in the area Bonham Norton and John Bill, and he asked them to print certain groups of pages of it. And so they each had their groups, and it became an entire mess. And there was 20 years of litigation that followed with people going to prison. And, and, I mean, it was pretty crazy how that worked. And we think, like, five to six billion copies. You know, how how incredible is that? Well, they started with the first printing of 20,000 copies. Which means, for each copy that they printed first, 300,000 more copies would be made for each one of those 20,000 copies. It just gives you an idea of the number of um, copies that have been made of the King James. Um, The more printers that were allowed to print the King James, the more misprints that you have in the King James. So the more times that people spell a word wrong or, or mess up, or, or miss a word. And so what happened is, um, you ended up with, in 1611, toward the end of 1611, the Judas Bible is printed. And so one of these printers decides they want to print their whole thing, and so, so they print the Judas Bible, and it says that Judas came with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> but Judas didn't come with his disciples, right? <laughs> um, the... Printer's Bible of 1612 says in Psalm chapter 1, verse 19, printers have persecuted me without a cause. It's supposed to say princes. <laughs> printers. In 1631, this was kind of a bad one. They had the adulterer's Bible. And here the word not is missing from the seventh commandment. Thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> This printer was actually fined a great deal of money. (laughs) And all of the copies were ordered to be destroyed. But there are 11 copies in existence today. So if you really want one. (laughs) There is the Unrighteous Bible of 1653. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God? It's supposed to be he shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but... And they shall. Um, the Sinner's Bible in 1716 says, Go and sin on more. <laughs> the Fool's Bible of 1763, in Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, where it says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is a God. <laughs> then you have the. Uh, now, this, is, this was not a King James one. This was just because I was, I was doing this research and I came across a really funny one, and so I thought I'd share it with you, but this is a translate. This is a printing of the New English translation. It was printed in, in 1998. And in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16, this is what 
this is what it reads in the translation. You won't find anything wrong here. It says, to deliver you from the adulteresses, from the sexually loose women who speak flattering words. But what's funny is, when they printed this, the, the new English translation has an incredible number of notes. And so at the bottom, if you followed the cross-reference to that verse and you, you found the note, um, there was a 1-800 number. <laughs> this is a, a true story. And the translator explained that he got a phone call and he had to write down a number and he didn't have a, a pen or paper and he, just, he had his, his document open. And so he put the 1-800 number into the notes and it, somehow it, like, everybody missed it. So... That's pretty awesome. All right. The King James Bible was revised more officially in 1629 and in 1638, and again in 1762, and the last final update was in 1769. And these are all updates where what they're doing is they're changing punctuation. The way that English words were spelled changed, and so they would update the spelling. Uh, in some cases, they would change a word that had completely gone out of, out of use, and they would change it into a word that was used more commonly or more understood. In total, there are 100,000 changes from the King James 1611 version to the 1769 version, which is quite, quite a large number of changes. But like I said, the vast majority of those changes are just punctuation and spelling. And so that's, that's kind of the history. And as, as I said, each printer would decide whether or not to include the Apocrypha in their printing. But the Apocrypha has been rarely seen in parts of the King James Version after the 1769. If you go on Amazon and you look for a King James Bible with the Apocrypha, you can still find it. Okay, so there, there are still some printers that, that do, but it's, it's very rare. I think we're, we're out of time. Next week we'll be back. Um, just We'll kind of continue along with the King James a little bit, but we will be moving on from here. And what I want to talk about next week is the different texts that were used. The original text. So... Um, how the modern translations use a different text and why. Okay, thanks everyone.